From the National Project on Race and Capitalism, welcome to Season 3 of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, histories and geographies, with your host, Michael Dawson. It's my pleasure today to introduce Hannah Appel, who is the Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her work is at the intersection of economics and anthropology. She is the editor of The Promise of Infrastructure, published by Duke Press, and her forthcoming book is Futures, Oil and the Illicit Life of Capitalism in Equatorial Guinea, which explores the U.S.-based oil and gas industry's efforts to disentangle the production of profit from the frictions of place to manage risk, liability, and responsibility through a work-intensive project she calls modularity. Welcome to the New Dawn Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. No, thank you. So I was also thrilled to see that today your piece on items went up. Yes, thanks to you. Thank you. (laughs) At the SSRC website. And it starts off really provocatively. You say markets are made by inequality. So what do you mean by that and in the context you work and how that linked to your understanding of racial capitalism? Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like in a lot of the ways that I was trained to think critically about capitalism and its intersection with race or with gender or with other forms of inequality, I was taught that profit-oriented markets deepened inequality or reproduced inequality, but that kind of left unsaid or unexplored how markets themselves were made. And as an anthropologist, like for me, my ethnos, right, the thing that I study is capitalism. That's what interests me most. It's practices, it's imaginations, it's institutions, it's people, it's forms of expertise, it's history. So that question you know, what are the conditions in which something that comes to be called a market and then is imagined to constitute something called capitalism are made, led me to kind of rethink this question, especially given, you know, the kind of material that I had after my research in Equatorial Guinea, led me really to rethink that relationship, as did, you know, reading so many people, and hopefully we'll be able to get into that, my influences. But what I mean by that is to say that rather than simply deepening or reproducing pre-existing forms of inequality, which of course capitalism does, I want to say that market terms, contract terms, labor markets, right, are actually made by forms of inequality. So the example that I use on the SSRC podcast is the the sort of illustration of how Filipinos came to dominate um, the labor market at sea. In In this instance, I'm talking about Filipino men in particular. And what you see in that history is that in the wake of World War II, the Navy, the U.S. Navy was resegregated, right? African American men were kicked out of the Navy. And suddenly there was this huge need for expertise, bodies, in the Navy. And so the U.S., which was at that time an occupying power, a colonial power in the Philippines, began providing English language nautical training to Filipino colonial subjects. And three years of that training qualified Filipino men for American citizenship, right? So there, just in that really simple example, you see how forms of racial meaning making, forms of segregation, systems of domination, in that case, Jim Crow and American colonial presence in the Philippines end up making the terms of what is otherwise called a labor market. 
right? So rather than just saying the labor market reproduced those forms of inequality, we can say those forms of inequality, the need to set the so-called need to resegregate the Navy actually then made the terms of the market. And I think it's particularly visible in terms of a labor market, but you can also see it at least in my own work, but certainly that of others in contract terms. And here I'm of course thinking of Charles Mills and Carol Pateman. Yeah, so I write about it in terms of production sharing contracts between major transnational oil companies and sovereign states like Equatorial Guinea. You can see it in subcontracting. You can see it in marriage contracts. So that's an argument that I try to trace throughout the whole book. You also, I think in the same article, talk a bit about how in sub-Saharan Africa, racial hierarchies are reproduced by the market or created by the market as well. Yes. So... I guess I still want to say the same thing, which is that histories of racial hierarchy in the African continent that come with and through colonialism in particular are the terms, are the terrain, are what Ann Stoller calls the imperial debris in which markets are made, right? So if we think about, and now I'm channeling Siba Grovegi's work, somebody who my wonderful colleague Shamima Pierre introduced me to, right? If we think about the sort of sovereignty that a nation state, that a state apparatus like Equatorial Guinea might be able to exercise in the face of a major transnational, US-based transnational oil corporation, inevitably we have to think of the histories of imperial debris that ha- that sort of give the Equatorial state its capacities, right? Like, so what, are their, what does their legal terrain look like? And what their legal terrain looks like is kind of the sort of chaotic aftermath of Franco-era Spanish colonial regime, right? And so then when the U.S. oil industry comes to town and the U.S. oil industry uses its contract terms called stabilization clauses to stabilize the environmental law, the the labor law, the taxation regimes that are in place when their contracts start, right, at the beginning of a 30 to 50 year contract term, then you see the ways that forms of racial hierarchy on the African continent, in this case in Equatorial Guinea, actually create the terrain for what we then call markets. So for the price per barrel of oil, for example, that U.S. oil companies are able to negotiate with the Equatorial state in their production sharing contract, right? So it's not simply that sort of pre-existing forms of racism, racial inequality, racial hierarchy are deepened, but rather those very forms of inequality then set terms that oil companies are, be, are able to say, oh, that's just the rules of the economy. That's just the global markets. That's just how they work. But in fact, obviously, what they're gesturing to are, in a sense, histories of colonialism. And this is related to what you talk about in another article, if I, if I, if I have this correct, how unequal colonial histories are made legitimate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I... You may be talking about the article that I wrote on, on the National Economy Forum, the idea of yeah. this thing that exists called the National Economy, and it apparently yeah. ostensibly exists the same way in every place. And of course, the history here now channeling Timothy Mitchell's work, among other people, but the history of this thing called the National Economy is very recent. It's just in the mid-20th century. Um, and the mid-20th century on the African continent in particular is right when we're getting into sort of the heat of anti-colonial struggle and we're on the eve of independence. And what you see there is that as these metrics like GDP, right, gross domestic product, as Keynes is sort of first publishing his most influential works that will solidify in the discipline of economics, this idea of something called a national economy, you start to see, of course, 
these independence fights and struggles and then independence and a shift between the relations in the global north and south, between what was colonialism pre-independence to what is then called, you know, development um, post-independence. And development essentially takes this thing called the national economy as its object, right? But what happens is the histories of the radical inequality between what are suddenly now sovereign states, right? It's no longer the French empire or the British empire or the Portuguese empire, but suddenly now it's Senegal. It's the national economy of Senegal and it's the national economy of France. And these two things can ostensibly put be put side by side with one another and equally measured with GDP. And oh no, it looks like Senegal has fallen behind, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's this sort of like fabulous, fabulously effective erasure of the racialized inequality that colonialism wrought. And of course, with it, the sort of infrastructures that it left in its place that were only for expert export, you know, obviously the forms of expertise, the forms of knowledge transfer that it left in its place. But suddenly that form of equality, so-called, right, that we see the sort of formal equality that we see in the wake of independence has this disastrous effect when it's made licit through these ideas of GDP or something called comparable national economies, right? Because it does have that effect of erasing what are very obvious relational historical inequalities. It reminds me actually, and I've used this sometimes of my other fabulous colleague, Cheryl Harris, writes about the way that that happened in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education, right? That so when what is it, de jure segregation is outlawed, then it can seem like the forms of inequality that remain can be individualized or pathologized against a certain racial group, right, against African Americans. So too, in the wake of colonialism, that when colonialism is de jure eliminated, right, when like anti-colonial struggles win, then it can very easily look like any remaining form of inequality can be pathologized onto the African state, et cetera. So... Yeah, the national yeah. economy and economics in particular, you know, offer us a really rich empirical window into those, that kind of thinking, I think. I think it does. And one of the things you call for in that article is an ethnography of, of the economy, but also you talk about the economy as a privileged object. What did you yeah. mean by both of those? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the article is somewhat programmatic in that I'm not totally sure what I mean by an ethnography of the national economy. I think it's certainly something that in ethnographic work often lurks kind of in the explanatory background of the thinking of a given theorist, right? So you might say something like, oh, the national economy of India was liberalized in the 1990s in response to structural adjustment. And then let me tell you about all the really interesting local things that happened. Whereas we don't often as anthropologists offer similarly textured accounts of what that ostensibly causal background looks like, right? Like we don't necessarily have the ways, although I feel like we've increasingly developed them over the last two decades, but to think in a sort of richly detailed ethnographic way about something like a national economy form, which is, as I say in the article, you know, sort of one of the most privileged objects of our unevenly shared modernity. And by privilege ob privileged object, I mean, you know, sort of this causal location that it occupies in everything from the rhetoric and theory of the Trump regime to the rhetoric and theory of, you know, sort of like leftist imaginings. I mean, it's, it's a, um, 
you know, if there are heterodox and orthodox approaches to it, it is the doxa. The national economy is the doxa that often kind of lurks in the background. But again, when you look at its recent history, you see, for instance, that the idea of a globalized world impeding on what has been a sort of natural and naturalized history of nation states is patently false, right? The world has been globalized long before the world was nationalized and sort of national ideas are a mere blip, but that mere blip and part of that blip is this idea of the national economy has tremendous political performativity, right? Often, very often, certainly in the case of the United States where I live today, linked to race and sort of racial histories and like nationalist racial imaginaries, right? Like a kind of wildly bizarre European imaginary of like the history of the United States, for example. You've mentioned several different influences or sources that have influenced your work. Can you talk a bit more about your influences? I know that those of us in political science often come to some type of understanding of race and capitalism through some combination of Cedric Robinson and yeah. Du Bois, particularly yeah. Black construction. What were some of the influences that, that have made a difference in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing I'll say is, so I, I was interested in the anthropology, what I came to call the anthropology of capitalism throughout my PhD. And one member of my PhD committee in particular, Sylvia Yangisako, was involved in a similar project. So she's been working both alone and together with Lisa Rofel on a project, first about transnational family capitalism and about the sort of power of gender and kinship in particular as, as forces of production, essentially. It's like a feminist reading of capitalism. And now her work with Lisa Rofel is about Italian clothing manufacturers, so the very famous one, you know, Prada, et cetera the relationship between the kind of made in Italy brand and Chinese labor or Chinese manufacturing, whether those are Chinese workers in Italy or whether that's kind of the offshoring of the making of ostensibly Italian clothing. And so her work in the anthropology of a sort of feminist approach to capitalism was incredibly influential to me. And she brought me into a group called Generating Capitalism, which I've been privilege to be a part of. And there, there's Anat Singh, there's Karen Ho. You know, Anna has this wonderful article in Rethinking Marxism that I use all the time, in which she says something like, no corporation has to personally invent patriarchy, colonialism, war, racism, imprisonment. But each of those is privileged in capitalism, right? They don't have to invent them, but they already exist for corporations to take advantage of and to mobilize in their supply chain. So Anat Singh's work has been really influential to me. And it was actually a talk that Karen Ho, who wrote this fabulous ethnography of Wall Street, it was actually a talk that she gave here at UCLA that helped me to develop this argument about how it is that racial differentiation comes to proxy for the so-called rules of the economy. And she's also drawing on a woman named Sumi Cho there. But okay, so that was kind, that's kind of like a, a grad school experience. But what I have to say, I mean, I, perhaps it's obvious, but I will make it plain, is that when I, you know, so I think this is my fifth year at UCLA, maybe my fourth year, and this is my first job. And I came into what feels to me like a national bastion of the Black radical tradition, maybe a global bastion of the Black <laughs> radical tradition, right? Which is to say that the influence of Cheryl Harris, of Robin Kelly, of Jumima Pierre, of Peter Hudson, of Sarah Haley, of Shauna Redmond. I mean, I could just go on and on and on of Gay Teresa Johnson. And then, so they are my 
mentors and my teachers and my colleagues and my friends, and then through them, right, to say, you have to read Cedric Robinson or you have to read W.V. Du Bois. Those are not thinkers who I was exposed to during my PhD, nor was I exposed to the Black radical tradition during my PhD. So even though I feel like I was given sort of the tools or I was given the mandate to see that capitalism is constituted in and through, you know, whatever it is, gender, race, religion, sexuality, embodiment, et cetera, I didn't have an analytical tradition like the black radical tradition that had been doing that kind of work for so long. And so coming to UCLA and into that group of scholars who have been so generous and patient with me (laughs) as I try to introduce myself to this. And then through them, of course, you know, learning about your work and Nathan Connolly's work. I mean, it's just like kind of exploded my analytical tools. And I'm on the one hand, I'm really thankful that I have been introduced to this material before I wrote my book, because I, I really hope that it has strengthened my book. And yet I know I, I have just scratched the surface. I mean, I'm like so new to this, but I'm, I'm just so thankful to those colleagues and teachers for being here. (laughs) I think most of us have a similar experience, even if there's a difference in generation. Uh, I certainly didn't read Du Bois in grad school, let alone Cedric Robinson. And what may be a difference is that the study of capitalism was forbidden. We could study markets and political economy, but capitalism was taken as the sovereign given. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, the unquestioned good that made everything go in, in the right direction. Right. <laughs> and I think, you know, anthropology has been a sort of bastion for a certain kind of leftist for a long time. So capitalism, un- unlike, I, th- I mean, that's certainly true in political science, but I think you have more, like I have a political science colleague here who shall remain unnamed, though he's a very nice person, but he made a joke with me when I was writing my syllabus. He's like, oh, I'm so happy to have gotten my through my PhD and never had to read Marx. And he's actually quite senior at this time, right? And he was saying he was proud to have never read Marx. And I think there are very few anthropologists, and I don't say this to sort of support our discipline's leftist politics in any way, but it is to say that I think capitalism in particular you know, has always been, if not an op- like available as an object of study, it's been available as a sort of loosely used bad word, right? Because you always have to read Marx in your in your your foundations class. So, yeah, it's not Cedric Robinson, as you point out, right? <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Yeah, one of the I think developments that the historians and anthropologists have been pushing us to in the study of race and capitalism is to take much, a much more critical stance toward, and one of your colleagues, Peter Hudson, certainly has been one of the leading people in the current generation. They're thinking about the U.S. as an empire and how it works in different parts of the world, not just within its own borders, which uh, many of us have been paying attention to, going back to people like us. One of my first mentors, St. Clair Drake. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... One of the things that you write about in terms of the way that U.S. companies work in Equatorial Guinea and elsewhere in Sub-Saharan Africa is the question of how they manage risk or how they see themselves managing risk through their daily operations. What did you mean by that? Absolutely. I mean, the first thing I'll say is, yes, Peter Hudson's book, Bankers and Empire, is fabulous. And just to plug it here, and reading that book has also been really instrumental for me in trying to envision my second project, which is about Pan-African banking. So just to flag that and to flag Peter's work. But yeah, I mean, I think in terms of how United... I'm so... Now I distracted myself from what you said. You asked me... Well, you 
companies and manage, risk management. How to manage risk, right. So the main way in which I think about how corporate or sort of offer a series of ethnographic vignettes and sort of a bunch of ethnographic data on how U.S. companies manage risk in Equatorial Guinea is actually through several chapters on the contract form, which mm-hmm. ends up being a kind of leitmotif throughout the book. So in particular, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, but the contract form that is most relevant here and to oil and gas production in the global south in particular is something called a production sharing contract or a PSC. And this is a contract form that has two parties, as most contracts do, and which are listed fairly simply in the contract as the corporation and the state, right? Which if we want to think about sort of the state effect, how something called a state comes to be reified in practice, or similarly, even the corporation effect, how something called a corporation, which is obviously has far-flung, you know, shareholders, inputs, supply chains, labor, but how it comes to be called the corporation, the contract is a really wonderful place to look for those kinds of structural effects. But Basically, when U.S. companies go into countries in the global south, U.S. uh, oil companies in particular, oil and gas companies, go into countries in the global south in particular, and in the global south in places that are rated by the types of ratings agencies that do this thing, so whether that's, you know, Standard & Poor's on the one hand, or Moody's kind of market analytics agencies, or on the other hand, the so-called international community organizations like Transparency International, the World Bank Freedom House, the Economist Intelligence Unit, anywhere that's thought to have, quote unquote, a weak rule of law, and we can talk about that, right? But this is kind of, with my scare quotes, you hear the imperial debris to which I was gesturing before. What they do with these contracts is they become effectively self-enclosed law, right? So they're thousands of pages long. And one of the most egregious and I think consequently illustrative examples of what I'm talking about within a contract form is this thing that I gestured to earlier called the fiscal stability clause. So the fiscal stability clause essentially says that the law and fiscal regimes that are in place when we, whoever we are, ExxonMobil, sign this contract with you, the government of Equatorial Guinea, those laws, environmental, labor, taxation, those laws will stay the same as long as this contract is extant. And the general contract term in an oil and gas play is about 30 to 50 years, right? And if you, the government of Equatorial Guinea, want to change any of these laws, if you want to change your labor law, if you want to change your environmental law, if you want to change your tax code, and if that change affects our bottom line, in other words, if it affects our profit margins, then you have to indemnify us. You, the state of Equatorial Guinea, have to indemnify us, the transnational corporation, for our profit loss. Now that is as striking, what's the word I want to use, sort of betrayal of the naive idea of Westphalian sovereignty as you could ever possibly get, right? I mean, that's like blatant sovereignty of a corporation precisely because these kind of metrics that I referred to earlier, right, whether it's Transparency International or Freedom Freedom House or Moody's Analytics or S&P are made, they don't just deepen race. They're made in histories of racialized disparity of the kind that constituted colonialism and of the kind that remains in the wake of colonialism, right? Which enable these kinds of assessments that say, oh, Equatorial Guinea is without the rule of law. Oh, Equatorial Guinea doesn't respect private property rights. Oh, Equatorial Guinea Guinea this, Equatorial Guinea that. 
right? So anthropologists often have said, oh, well, all of that is just telling us what Equatorial Guinea isn't. It's telling us what it lacks. So let's us, the anthropologists, go back and do the diligent work of showing how political life in Equatorial Guinea actually works, not simply what it lacks. And that's right. And I, I learned that approach. I like that approach. I do much of that approach in my own work. However, while we, the diligent anthropologist, are busy showing how sociopolitical life actually works and not simply how it's distanced from like an ostensible liberal norm, those metrics are doing their work in the world, right? Those metrics are making market terms. Those metrics are enabling something called a fiscal stability clause to work, to be felicitous in a way that it never would be in, I don't know, Norway or Mexico. I mean, there are all kinds of places, you know, there's kind of a gradation of the strength of something called fiscal stability clauses. But that's an example of how the U.S. oil industry works to mitigate risk, right? So they imagine a sort of nationalization risk, what they, the companies call step-by-step encroachment, and they basically militate against it legally, licitly, They take away Equatorial Guinea's sovereignty as a transnational corporation, licitly, legally, in the contract form. In other words, this is not a controversy that I am explaining to you. This is like actually written out in the contract, and I learned it from the expatriate management people I worked with. It's not like some weird secret that I've uncovered. So that's one way. Yeah, one of the, how it actually, I mean, this is disciplinary training. You talk about how it violates fears of nationalization and violates sovereignty, but it's also mm-hmm. one of the most anti-democratic mechanisms I can think of. Yeah. All the incentives are to to discourage mass mobilization in fear of triggering one of those indemnity demifying uh, clauses. Mm-hmm. So you can see how the government, would, even for no other reason than just for fiscal stability, would want to make sure that there were no democratic movements that might demand changes in environmental laws or labor laws or the like. Oh, that's right. Abs- I mean, that is absolutely right. And in fact, over time, oil company CEOs, there's this amazing quote by Ed Chow, who was a former, I, gosh, I want to say he was a Chevron executive. I forget if he was Chevron or ExxonMobil who basically says that for oil company democracy doesn't work for oil companies so that they look they prefer a strong man president his words a strong man president precisely as you say because a stable regime for them sort of stable contractual terms over 30 to 50 years means that they're going to court and sort of maintain a strong man president you know a sort of dictatorship as long as they can and indeed Obiang Ngema Mbazwa who is currently the president of Equatorial Guinea is actually the longest serving head of state in the world But in the early 90s, and here I'm drawing on the work of Tutu Alicante, an Equatoguinean human rights leader, social justice leader, who's published quite a bit about this. So, you know, in the early 1990s, interestingly, as a kind of initially superficial response to structural adjustment clauses, and we can talk about that, the kind of unexpected consequences that those can have someplace. But, you know, there are these kind of like nominal calls for a so-called quote-unquote democratization in some of the, as a conditionality on some structural adjustment loans in the global south. And in the case of Equatorial Guinea, it, it kind of forced Obiang's government then in the early 90s to legalize, to legalize opposition parties or give opposition parties slightly more room for maneuver than they had had previously as a condition of taking these loans. 
And what ended up happening there is that in the early 90s, 92, 93, 94, I forget exactly what year, but there was a coalition of opposition parties that developed to oppose Obiang, who had already been in power by that time for almost a decade and a half since 78. Um, yeah, 78, 88, yeah, about 15 years at that point. So, And they won a majority of seats in parliament. I mean, uh, more than a majority. I mean, I think it was over 90%. I don't know. I can look back at it. And then in 1994, a wildcat American company discovered oil. And then in 1995, there was an election. So, uh, sorry, a presidential election. So one would think, right, a mere two years after this opposition coalition had been established, they had won sort of a huge majority of seats in parliament that needless, perhaps needless to say, that OBN would be unseated in that election because the same opposition coalition ran against him. But, um, you know, there was like the New Democracy Foundation or some, you know, strange wing of U.S. foreign policy, quote unquote, abroad that the U.S. oil companies brought in. And they, I mean, an Obiang stayed in power, perhaps no surprise. And he is basically buoyed entirely from that moment, right, from 1994 to now, 2018, by U.S. oil companies. We, and I, I say we to implicate myself, we pay to keep him in power, straight up. I mean, there's. I mean, it's it's as clear of a case of U.S. oil companies keeping a dictatorship in power, strengthening a dictatorship, as I think you could see in the entire world. And there are some sort of sick but perhaps hilarious ironies. So, like in the I want to say 2012, 2013 lobbyists um, who work for the Ecuadorian government, U.S. lobbyists who work for the Ecuadorian government, took out a full-page ad in the New York Times, the title of which was Equatorial Guinea, a new paradise for investors. And it was all about the regime's stability, right? But here, the stability of a regime is precisely, as you say, Professor Dawson, which is that a U.S. oil, that U.S. oil companies are paying to keep a dictatorship completely hermetic so that the terms for capital investment can be essentially... I mean, that they are trying to make them appear to be essentially without friction. So, yes, anti-democratic with capital letters and then some. So we have about 10 minutes, and I thought it might be fun to talk about some of your future work as well as some of the work you do with Occupy. So let's start yeah. with your future work. I'm an old, at least I've been told by some of the graduate students sitting around this table that I'm old school. And okay. They just drop the school and just say old. <laughs> I think of Nkrumah and Du Bois and, you know, mid-20th century and earlier movements. Absolutely. You're talking about Pan-African banking, and I'm curious to know what, what that's about. Yes, as am I, which is why I'm doing the project, which is to say, so this is something that's really just beginning. I'm hoping to submit a funding, like a major funding proposal for it in the early part of January. But basically to start with your point about Nkrumah and sort of histories, what I think of as socialist histories of Pan-African activism, anti-colonial, and eventually sort of post-independence community economy autonomy building, right? That's also, I may be old school and I also, I mean, that is certainly my how I learned about Pan-Africanism. What one of the things that first drew me to this project was precisely the fact that a series of banks that are African-owned and African-capitalized and multi, transnational and multinational corporations, right? So based on the African continent, African-owned, African-capitalized, and operating some of these biggest banks in over 35 countries on the continent are calling themselves Pan-African. 
right? So they refer to themselves as Pan-African banks in their literature, on their websites, to the extent that now when you read the kind of secondary literature coming out of the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, that this group of banks is now referred to as Pan-African banks. You know, and I think there's kind of an obvious read here, which is to say that histories of utopian socialism and histories of effective struggle are being sort of reappropriated for a neoliberal moment in which, you know, sort of capitalism is the revolutionary imagination of the day. And that may be true, and I'm sure it's at least partly true. (laughs) However, I, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. And one of the reasons that I think it's an interesting question is as follows, which is that as somebody trained in critical development studies... The International Monetary Fund, right, the IMF, and the World Bank are very often the villains of our work, right? So once we get through the colonial era into the development era, these international financial institutions and the kinds of anti-democratic terms that they set, where they essentially set the economic terms, the social terms, the terms of like a sort of social safety net at the very time that African countries are democratizing, quote unquote, right? They sort of take away the power of governance via loan conditionalities, in one, so that they often, through that story, become rightly, in my opinion, I've written about them in this way, the villains of that story. And yet, there is a 2015 IMF report that says the IMF, the World Bank, and I feel like they use some word like they don't use heritage banks, but they use some word legacy, legacy banks, and by which they mean Barclays, right? The sort of colonial institutions that Peter Hudson writes about. IMF 2015 report says these international financial institutions now have the the great minority of market share on the continent. What used to be the sort of powerful financiers of African public sector and private sector projects now are no longer important at all on the continent and only have roughly a 13% market share compared to a 77% market share held by these African-owned, African-capitalized multinational institutions. And I was like, huh? <laughs> That's what I just said in my own mind. <laughs> right? I mean, I, first of all, I was like, why did I have to read some like obscure IMF report when I was like clicking around in an internet rabbit hole in some like research world to find out about this? Exactly. You know, and then also to the extent that the IMF and the World Bank have become, you know, this kind of causal explanation for everything. You know, I'm assu- I mean, this is this is relatively recent. And I have, I mean, I, I spent some of the last winter in Togo and Ghana, and so I, I, I've done some preliminary research, and now I have a better sense of this timeline, but it's a very recent phenomenon, and so we don't know much about it yet. We don't know what kinds of effects it'll have, but at the very least, it seems like a really interesting moment to then go back to the kinds of Pan-African thinking and theorists to whom you gestured earlier, right? Or I also think about people who put Africa at the center of their political, their sort of global political economic analyses. So certainly thinking about some of W.E.B. Du Bois's other work, right? Africa and the world, thinking about Walter Rodney. I mean, I think they're thinking about Kwame Nkrumah. I mean, there are all, all kinds of theorists with whom to think here. But that shift, should it be true, seems like a really compelling moment in which to rethink these kind of multiple histories of Pan-Africanism and in which to think kind of larger Africa in the world arguments, which have so often been structured around marginalization, abjection, you know, extroversion, underdevelopment. I mean, you know, there are many of these theories, as you might imagine, Um, but it seems like a really interesting time to rethink that. So that's, you know, what I'm hoping to do. 
<laughs> oh, fascinating. I can't wait for you to finish. So Thanks. I, can I can't wait for me to start, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it also gets back to the question though, that we often see in critical racial studies and feminist studies as if marginalized groups were actually controlling inst- uh, institutions of power, would there actually be a difference or not? Yeah. Is there a difference between when the legacy financial institutions and IMF and the World Bank were controlling things and when Africans, you know, depending on what you find, are controlling 75, 77% of the economy? How much of a difference is it actually making to people's lives? No, absolutely. And also, just in terms of straightforward research questions, what does it mean to call capital African? Right. What does it mean to call capital Chinese? What does it mean to call capital, you know, from the United States or from Europe? And what are the sort of supra-African structures and, of course, supra-African histories and geographies that would still affect any institution that is ostensibly African-owned and African-capitalized, right? I mean, I don't know the answers to those questions. So I really am in a kind of positivist way, dare I say it, like wanting to explore some of those terms, right? It's kind of like, how do you, I mean, this is preposterous, but I'll say it anyways. How do you do an ethnography of the global economy with Africa at the center, right? Like, what do you learn as you move out and ask questions like that? What does it mean to call capital African? Can we call capital African? So I have some participant observation positions lined up with some of these big banks and, um, you know, we'll see. I'll report back as best I can. <laughs> I, it's actually absolutely important and fascinating work. Can you say a little bit about the work you do around debt collection? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I just quickly, what I'll say is, as I said about the oil book, that contracts and the contract form became this kind of leitmotif throughout the book. So the question that I work with in my activist work, and it's at the debtcollective.org, it's a group of us, I'm one of the founding members, but is this question of what does... collective action look like? What does financial disobedience look like in the age of finance capitalism in particular, right? So because the terms, both the legal terms, but also just the spatial terms of not occupying factory floors with one another, quote unquote, as if any of us ever did in any kind of like equal or mass way, but with the empirical specificities of finance capitalism, with the political specificities of finance capitalism, with the racial specificities of finance capitalism, what new forms of collective financial power and sort of leverage over the system are possible? And basically the wager that we take at the debt collective is that debtors unions are possible and debtors unions are necessary as a huge leverage point over a financialized economy, in addition to not to replace, but in addition to all the other kinds of organizing that are sort of flowering now and taking place. So the first union we organized was a union, is a union of for-profit college debtors, which to date has discharged, if I do it in a narrow sense, $750 million of debt. So you may have heard about Betsy DeVos recently on the radio losing a lawsuit and she had to discharge yeah. hundred. So that was, that was us, that's our union. And there had been $600 million of discharge as the regimes changed from the Obama regime to the Trump regime. So yeah, so that union has been a spectacularly successful proof of concept, though, you know, compromised in the ways that all of these are. And now we're, we're still working. So thinking about medical debtors unions in support of single payer healthcare, we've been working with the coalition down here in California on bail, fines, fees, and jail. So ways to think about collective action around bail, fines, and fees debt. And then finally, I mean, you know, student debt writ large is $1.5 trillion. So I'll just say that it does seem with that collective leverage that debtors own the banks in a certain way. So that's our, that's our wager. 
Thank you very, very much. And Thank you. We have two seconds left. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on racingcapitalism.com. That is racingcapitalism.com to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.